Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Kathleen Martin to the show today to discuss a book that she has co-authored with Stanton Friedman called Captured, the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. This was the first heavily publicized alien abduction that happened on September 19th, 1961 to Betty and Barney Hill. Betty's niece, Kathleen Martin, is here today to talk to us about the book, the experience of Betty and Barney Hill, her background as a UFO and abduction researcher. She's also an author and a lecturer and a senior fellow of the Institute of Frontier Science and a MUFON Director of Field Investigator Training, Emeritus. She has taken a big stand to bring this information forward, along with Stanton Friedman, as well as to transcribe all of the tapes that were available from Betty and Barney Hill's abduction experiences under hypnosis, a huge task, and I would imagine a difficult one. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome Kathleen Martin to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. Wow. Where to begin in all of this? Huge, huge, huge body of work. And I know that captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. You have tapped the surface of what you're sitting on, really. I have. Uh, I had a word limit. And therefore, I could include only so much information in the book I had actually gone about thirty to 35,000 words above my publisher's limit before I received it, so I had to condense some of that information and uh, actually eliminate some of it. And so now I'm speaking about that at lectures and on radio programs and writing magazine articles about that. First, I want to talk about your family experience being Betty's niece and your mother being her sister, about what your impressions were as a child growing up relative to Betty's experience or the way she articulated her experience and her husband's experience. Oh, I have to say, first of all, that I was 13 years old when this happened. So I was a teenager on September 19, 1961. Uh, my aunt, Betty, and and my Uncle Barney had had no previous interest, no prior interest in UFOs. It was not something that my family ever discussed. Uh, however, we did have an interest in the Soviet space program and the American space program and the space race. Uh, so when Betty and Barney returned home from their vacation, uh, to Niagara Falls in Montreal uh, on September 20th, 1961, and Betty called my mother to report that they had had a close encounter with a large, hovering, silent craft the night before. Uh, I was very surprised. I had never heard about such a thing. In fact, I didn't know that there was life on other planets. I thought that Earth was the only inhabited planet. That's what I had learned in school. Uh, so it was really quite uh, big news to me, but very, very interesting. 
And it sort of came out a little bit at a time uh, with Betty and Barney. Um, within a couple of days of, of that phone call that Betty made to my mother, my family, my parents, and my two brothers and I traveled the 20 miles from my home in Kingston, New Hampshire, to Betty's and Barney's home in Portsmouth on New Hampshire's seacoast. It was then that I saw some of the physical evidence that something really strange had happened to my aunt and uncle. Their watches had broken and never worked again after that night. Uh, Somehow it might have been related to the close encounter they had with this craft. The tops of my uncle's best dress shoes were scraped. There was no rational explanation for how this could have happened. He was seated in his car, uh, driving from point A to point B. He had gotten out to look at this craft on three different occasions, but there was no prosaic explanation for how those shoes were so scraped that he had to wear them for yard work after that. Betty's dress had been in very fine condition the morning that she put it on in uh, Canada. She had only been a passenger in the car. They had stopped to to eat a couple of times. Um, She had also gotten out on a a couple of times to view this UFO. Uh, But when she arrived home, there were tears in the dress. And these were not just tiny tears. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. The hem was torn down on one side. There was a one-inch tear at the top of the zipper on the back on one side and a two-inch tear on the other side. Uh, There was no prosaic explanation for how this happened. Barney's binocular strap was broken. Well, there was a good explanation for that. He was very frightened when he was standing in that field looking up at this hovering craft that contained individuals that he described as strangely or um, non-human or somehow non-human were his exact words. And they were dressed in black, shiny outfits. Those he remembered consciously. Um, so he pulled, he was frightened, he pulled the binoculars away from his eyes, and that's probably how the strap was broken and when it was broken. There were also shiny spots on the trunk of their 1957 Chevy. Now, the strange thing about these spots is that they hadn't been there the day before. They hadn't been there in the morning when they put their luggage into the trunk of the car after they stayed at a motel. But they were there when they arrived home. And those spots were all about the same size. They were about the size of a half dollar or a silver dollar. There were several of them. Um, They were concentric circles. And when a compass was placed over those spots, it would cause the needle to spin and spin. But when the compass was moved away, they would drop down. It would drop down. So I saw those spots. I saw that evidence. And I heard 
Betty's and Barney's story about what they recalled from that night, about getting out of the car, about looking through binoculars at this strange craft that appeared to be uh, disc-shaped at its closest approach. At first, they thought it was cigar-shaped until they got a far better look at it. Uh, It appeared to have lighted windows on one side. It appeared to be rotating. It was silent. Uh, It flew in a very unconventional kind of pattern, in a stair-step pattern at times. It followed the, the topography of the tops of the mountains as it traveled along the top of the mountain through Franconia Notch in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it would drop down in front of the mountain at times and behind the mountain at times. But it seemed to be playing a, a game of cat and mouse with Betty and Barney as they traveled along. And, of course, there were those strange buzzing or beeping sounds on the trunk of their vehicle after Barney ran from that field where he had the close encounter and observed non-human entities on board the craft. He noticed that the craft had shifted overhead back over their vehicle as he was running to the car. As he went speeding down U.S. Highway Route 3, the major north-south route for New Hampshire in that time frame, he and Betty heard a series of beeping or buzzing sounds. They were code-like. They sounded electronic or mechanical. They caused uh, the car to vibrate and for this uh, tingling sensation to pass through Betty's and Barney's bodies. And at that point, they started to lose conscious awareness of time and of um, the terrain that they were passing through. They didn't speak to each other again for about 30 to 35 miles. And what brought them back to full consciousness and caused them to start talking again was a second series of beeping or buzzing sounds just like the first. The dog stood up on the back seat of the car and and looked out the rear window. Her ears perked up. Betty uh, asked Barney if if he thought that the craft was around again, uh, if he even believed that flying saucers were real now. He had been a skeptic before that. And he replied, oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. Of course not. Uh, He didn't want to admit to what he actually observed, although he did admit it the day that he arrived home. Uh, He was just becoming rather irritated about all of this. Uh, So I heard about all of these things, and over time I heard that there was a period of lost time, of missing time that Betty and Barney couldn't account for. And that I knew that Barney uh, had had sort of a mental block after he had observed these non-human entities on board the craft. Uh, The mental block was about their 
facial features. He knew that they were non-human, but there was something that he couldn't quite put together uh, to describe them, even though he said that one of them looked over his shoulder. uh, He thought that he had smiled from, from a distance as Barney viewed him through binoculars. He had seen these beings uh, from the tops of their heads uh, almost down to their feet. He had noticed that they had very spindly legs. That was one thing that he had mentioned. Um, But he and Betty were both perplexed by this apparent period of amnesia. And they started to drive to the White Mountains. They'd take weekend trips trying to jog their memories about what had happened during this period of missing time. They recalled that they had observed a fiery orb on the road, silhouetted against some trees. Uh, They recalled uh, encountering a roadblock somewhere along the route, but they didn't know where or when it occurred. What did your mom say to them when they're telling the story? You're there with your mom. What did your mom say to Betty and Barney? My mom was talking to Betty on the phone, uh, and that is when she had the the conversation with Betty about her concern about contamination. And Betty was also concerned. This was a very close encounter with this craft, it hovered only 100 to 200 feet above Betty and Barney. So they were very much worried about radiation or other forms of contamination. And so my mother uh, told Betty that she would speak to our neighbor, who was a physicist, uh, about this and ask his opinion. And it is he who suggested that they take the compass out to the car Uh, And she also spoke to uh, my father's friend, who was a former chief chief of police of Newton, New Hampshire, and he recommended that they make a formal report to Pease Air Force Base. Here comes Project Blue Book. But before we get there, what did your dad say to all this? My dad was amazed and very, very interested in all of this. On the day that we went to Betty's and Barney's house, uh, he sat in the living room talking quietly to Barney, and Barney described the non-human entities that he saw on board the craft as much as he could remember. He described his experience to my father, and my father was quite impressed by Barney's memory for these details. My father claims that he was the one who suggested that Betty and Barney find a good psychiatrist who used hypnosis to try to uh, assist Barney in recalling whatever it was that he couldn't recall. So uh, that was about my father's assessment of all of it. He was very interested. Was your mom more concerned than interested? Uh, I think she was both concerned and interested. Do you think she ever thought that her sister was nuts? Absolutely not. Okay, that's good. <laughs> not at all. My my Aunt Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. 
my family was well known and and respected in that area. Um, Betty and Barney were both active in their church. They were uh, civil rights leaders in New Hampshire. Um, so no, my my mother didn't for a moment think that Betty was nuts. In addition to that, I found out that in 1957, my mother had had her own UFO sighting, but had never mentioned it to me. Can you talk about it for a moment? Yes, I can. Uh, she always went grocery shopping on Friday evenings, and this particular Friday night, she was Uh, on her way from Kingston, New Hampshire, to Haverhill, Massachusetts, when uh, she saw a a large, uh, sort of a mothership, probably, uh, hovering over a field. She stopped the car and watched this, and then she ran to a house nearby. And the people who lived in that house went out as well, and they all watched smaller discs flying out of this larger craft and then eventually flying back into it. So uh, this was uh, quite impressive news to me back then. So my mother knew that UFOs were real, um, and that would give her further reason to think that, that Betty was not nuts. How extraordinary, though, for her to have seen that, and then when her sister and her sister's husband goes through this experience, to have at least had a frame of reference for being able to listen to it. Yes. Now, at the time that you're 13, you're hearing all this going on. Do you accept it? Yes, I did. Uh, I had uh, a lot of admiration for my aunt, uh, who was uh, one of the better educated people in the family, uh, a high achiever, and I always wanted to be like her. Uh, I thought that maybe I wanted to be a social worker for the state of New Hampshire as well. And uh, so I was very interested and intrigued and anxious to learn all that I could about this experience. But I was sworn to secrecy at the same time. Why? No one was ever to learn about this because of the public's perception about UFOs. And Betty and Barney had a lot to lose. They wanted all of this information to remain confidential. They would talk to family members about it, to a few close friends, to scientists and to UFO investigators, but it only became public through a violation of confidentiality in October of 1965. Which disrupted their entire lives, right? It absolutely did, yes. The sworn to secrecy part and doing the best they could to keep it private also gives time to maybe process what happened as well, right? Yes, it did give them and and the family as well time to process it. Uh, I think that I had a little bit of emotional impact uh, from the whole thing because I found myself writing stories about it and thinking about what might have happened. So uh, I became quite a good young writer (laughs) privately (laughs) writing these stories. And once in a while when I had uh, 
uh, a fiction story to turn in at, to an English class, I would turn one of those in. Oh, that's interesting. This whole thing became a muse. Yes. What about the fact that they were regular church-going people? How did this impact their sense of God or their religious views? I really don't think that it impacted their religious views. Uh, I think that they probably both thought that uh, if God created life on earth, life might have been created elsewhere by the same supreme being. Got it. I just wondered if they ever had to flush out any of their views on that or if you were ever privy to any revelations from that on a religious or spiritual level. Not really on a religious or a spiritual level. I think that it was more of their worldview that changed, that they began to perceive all people on earth as being one group, not uh, a lot of separate nations governed by nationalism, uh, where the major preoccupation was tribal warfare, but uh, as a world unit where we were all brothers and sisters. When did you become involved in transcribing Betty and Barney's hypnosis tapes? Well, I began my research on their case and my personal investigation of their case about 1990, about 21 years ago. And I finally came to the point where I wanted to hear the hypnosis tapes. And Betty turned them over to me in 1995. Uh, knowing that I was going to transcribe them for a comparative analysis. So it was done with her blessing uh, and with her assistance in understanding what was going on. Uh, It was quite extraordinary that their hypnosis tapes are not what we think of today as uh, regressive hypnosis uh, of an abduction experience, because Dr. Simon was a psychoanalyst, Dr. Benjamin Simon, and he had actually done Freudian hypnoanalysis with Betty and Barney over a six-month period. So not only did we hear what they individually stated happened to them, but also how they felt about that, what things in the past it reminded them of. So there there was a lot of personal information on those tapes and a lot of historical information about Betty's and Barney's lives. Was it hard to hear? Uh, Yes. Initially, it was difficult to hear, particularly one section of those tapes, and that is the section where... Barney was being forced to recall what happened in that field. He didn't want to recall that. Remember, that is the point where he developed a mental block. Dr. Simon pushed him. Barney begged with him to please let him wake up, uh, not to force him to have those memories. And Dr. Simon kept saying, well, it won't bother you now. Go on, go on. And there were um, very emotionally explosive 
parts uh, where Barney was uh, shrieking, where he was weeping, uh, where he was in awe. He was incredulous about what was happening to him. And it was difficult to listen to all of that. It was also difficult for me to listen to Betty's fear, her weeping, her crying, um, her, her stating that uh, when they actually encountered the roadblock with the non-human entities, she had never been as frightened in her entire life. Uh, she really felt that her life was threatened, and she attempted to escape but wasn't able to. She was captured. Uh, so just it was it was distressing emotionally to listen to all of that. Is there anything that you would be called to share about listening to the distressing tellings of the captured experience that you think we should know about that, aside from what's written in the book or part of what's written in the book? Well, I think that what the public needs to know uh, is that I did a comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's statements, and there has been uh, a lot of speculation that perhaps Betty was merely reliving a series of dreams that she had uh, a couple of weeks after her close encounter. In all, she had five dreams or nightmares. In November of 1961, she rearranged them into a storyline. Uh, Barney hadn't read them, but he had overheard her telling uh, Walter Webb, the NICAP investigator, and some family members about some of the details of her dreams. He always thought they were dreams, um, but there's speculation that she relived those dreams and that Barney absorbed the information from those dreams and merely repeated them under hypnosis. And what I found in my comparative analysis by taking Betty's statements and Barney's statements and lining them up and comparing them to Betty's dreams was that they gave specific, detailed information that wasn't in Betty's dreams, and often it contradicted information in Betty's dreams. And there was no way that they could have shared that information at an earlier date because Dr. Simon imposed amnesia at the end of each hypnosis session. He hypnotized them separately, and not only could they not discuss this information with each other, they couldn't even remember what they had stated themselves until uh, they were well along in uh, their hypnosis sessions and had actually relived all of their experiences. It was only during the therapy toward the end where they began to remember what they stated under hypnosis. Don't you think it's fascinating that that long ago that a doctor could impose amnesia during a hypnosis session and it would work? No, I don't find it uh, interesting or, or particularly uh, unique. They knew a lot back then, is my point. They knew an awful lot back well, then. Well, what I have to say is that Dr. Simon uh, was renowned for his work uh, with shell shock victims of World War II. 
he used hypnotic regression uh, to work with these individuals who were suffering from the emotional trauma and physiological symptoms, uh, psychosomatic symptoms uh, brought on by hysteria, uh, such as blindness or the inability to walk, that had not receded with traditional psychotherapy. Dr. Simon was unique in his use of hypnosis and highly successful. He was in Who's Who in America. He taught at Harvard. He taught at Yale. The movie Met, Let There Be Light was made about his work. He became famous for what he did. At one time, he owned his own psychiatric hospital. But when Betty and Barney saw him, uh, it was at his office. He was uh, older than and more of an advanced age. But he was a true expert in the use of hypnosis. Now, Kathleen, in your research, you reviewed not only all the tapes, but all the suggestions, the hypnotic suggestions that Dr. Simon had given to Betty and Barney as well. That is correct. He was a skeptic, though, wasn't he? He was absolutely a skeptic. He was looking for a psychological explanation for what had happened to Betty and Barney. In fact, uh, Walter Webb, the NICAP investigators, wrote in his final report that Dr. Simon proved to be so skeptical that he refused to read any of the UFO sighting reports that Walter had given to him. Uh, so he was absolutely not willing to consider the idea that Betty and Barney had been abducted by space aliens who were visiting this planet. Don't you think also that the view of the person directing the hypnosis, no matter what their real-world experience is, that if they can't even fathom that something could exist, that that skepticism is directing their inquiry? Oh, it absolutely was directing Dr. Simon's inquiry. And, and often hypnotherapists today are criticized for leading the witness to an abduction. On the contrary, Dr. Simon led Betty and Barney away from an abduction. He attempted to uh, find any possible explanation for the statements that they made about their UFO abduction. Now, what about Betty's nightmares about being taken aboard the craft and the beeping sounds? It was my understanding that this happened also before the abduction. Did I get that right? Oh, no. Okay. Um, it was after. Before the abduction. It was after Betty and Barney's close encounter in New Hampshire's White Mountains that she had the nightmares. They occurred five nights in a row, and it was about two weeks after their close encounter. And that was it. She didn't have any more nightmares until uh, she was undergoing hypnoanalysis with Dr. Simon. It seemed to be there were a lot of players, formal players, involved in military operations. J. Allen Hynek was involved in the fold. Obviously, there was a concerted effort to investigate it seriously, even if there was another concerted effort to make them think it was just a psychological episode that they both had. That is very true. There, um, Allen Hynek 
Dr. James Harder from APRO was very interested in the case. Uh, also, you have the military who were involved formally and informally. Uh, there, uh, there was Walter Webb, who was the investigator. Then we had uh, C.D. Jackson, uh, who, who came onto the scene, uh, and, and also James McDonald, who uh, was from Pease Air Force Base, who suddenly became Barney's best friend, and who uh, had actually been in the CIA. He said that he was no longer with the CIA at that time. Uh, you had Ben Swetch, who was an officer at Pease Air Force Base, who was also a hypnotist that Betty and Barney confided in and who, who helped them through the, all of this emotionally. Uh, Betty and Barney took their hypnosis tapes to him, finally, when their ses- sessions had ended. And he listened to them and... and gave Betty and Barney emotional support, particularly Barney, through all of this. So, yes, there were a a lot of major players here. What happened to Delcy, their dog? Well, on the night of the encounter, Delcy, as I said, had her ears were perked up while while, uh, the beeping or buzzing sounds were were striking the trunk of the car. she uh, was shaking and, and very frightened, it seemed, when Betty, when well, first Barney returned to the car, and then Betty came down the path after that, uh, according to their hypnosis. That wasn't part of her dream. They came at the same time, but under hypnosis, they arrived separately. Uh, Delcy was very frightened, uh, needed to be comforted when they arrived home. Delcy, for some reason, developed a, a severe fungus infection of her skin. Um, they weren't aware that she had had one before that. Also, she seemed to be having nightmares. Betty said that this was pretty new for Delcy, and she would woof, and and her little legs would run in her sleep. So uh, Betty felt that Delcy was experiencing some physical and some emotional uh, impact from this. After all of these many years of investigation and being so close and involved with the family for which this happened, what is your take on what's going on? Obviously, we have abduction reports now all over the world, millions of them. What is going on in your perspective I think that it's probably uh, a longitudinal, at least genetic, study of humans. I, and I think that it might even be a little more than that. It seems that through the 60s and 70s, uh, in those early abductions, uh, there was a modus operandi that the, the ETs seemed to follow. They would uh, approach a car uh, on a highway or a person who was outside or near their vehicle. Um, The craft would be seen. Oftentimes, the craft's occupants would be seen. 
um, the the individuals in the car would either be taken out of the car or the car itself would actually be picked up and taken into the craft. And the people were given all pretty much the same type of physical examination. Their skeletal structure would be examined, skin samples would be taken, uh, or skin scrapings, samples from uh, different areas of their bodies, uh, probably ova would be removed and uh, a sperm sample would be taken. Uh, into the 80s, that seemed to start changing, where people began to be abducted from their own homes. They might be sleeping. They might be abducted in the middle of the night from their bedrooms. Um, and it was there was far less evidence than there was in these first abductions that were taking place. And um, you know, I so I think that the whole operation became probably broader and more surreptitious than it was initially. I think there was also more of an effort to protect the individuals uh, emotionally from the abduction experience by the extraterrestrials. People were, started, were starting to have screen memories. They would, be, um, they would be moved up sort of a hollow kind of funnel in sort of a swirling energy mass up into the bottom of the craft. And on the way up, they might have screen memories of comforting images. Uh, they would find themselves on board the craft. And although they might have been initially frightened when they woke up and found these entities in their bedrooms, they might have attempted to flee before the paralysis set in, they were comforted when they were actually on board the craft. And then their memories were sometimes wiped out, probably in the majority of cases, only about uh, 30% of people remember the abduction experience itself. And I'm beginning to wonder if they are attempting to alter human DNA, if there's something that they're trying to remove from our DNA, and perhaps they're trying to move us along the evolutionary scale uh, to become less bellicose, uh, to, to maybe stop this tribal warfare and this greed that uh, drives so many humans, this, this violence. That's only a hunch, but I wonder. How would that happen since there are billions of us now? In other words, the DNA is already here. We already are who we are. Are you telling me they are trying to breed a new kind of human with different DNA? I mean, can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, I think that they're actually trying to alter our genetic structure. There are many, many babies that are being born that seem to have different qualities. And uh, they are less violent. You know, they might not be terribly interested in football games or violent spectator sports. Uh, they might be uh, psychic. 
they might be a lot smarter than uh, their siblings. And this uh, has been reported to be happening uh, in the children, the offspring of some abductees. It's something that we have to study more, but there seems to be a process going on. Now, many abductees also report that uh, there is breeding in incubators uh, on board these craft and that they are attempting to produce um, a mix, an alien-human hybrid mix. So that's something that's been reported, we, you know, but we don't have scientific evidence to back up any of that. You know, so it's only more or less hunches. The other thing that's kind of disconcerting about the abduction phenomenon, not only for the people that have been abducted and can communicate about it, is that there really doesn't appear to be any free will in this. They're taken, they're manipulated into the craft, and it's happening beyond their will. That's the part that's disturbing about this. They don't have any say about it. They're just being taken, captured. That is true, and that is a a very disturbing part of the whole abduction phenomenon is that people are taken against their will. They have no way of stopping this from occurring. And I have abductees who are suspected abductees, at least, who contact me uh, very frequently. And, uh, you know, I try to give them emotional support for what they're going through, some understanding, because most of these people have no one that they can even talk to about this. I've done an interview with Barbara Lamb and also Mary Rodwell from Australia. And some people think that the people who are abducted, those souls have agreed to this experience before they incarnated. Even if that is true, it doesn't seem like a soul would agree to this. <laughs> well, you know, we're going you way know, Yeah, we're going way, way beyond. But there are some people who, particularly in ufology, do not want to consider that a part of what's happening is not okay. There are some people in the ufology field that think that all of this is love and light and good and that these beings are going to make life better for us and they're here to help us and all that. It's a worldview. It's a cosmology. Yes, it is. However, I have to tell you my bias. My bias is that it's somewhere in between. It's not that, but it's also not that they're all horrendous. It's somewhere in between, just like everything. There seems to be a balance of terrible experiences, trauma in life afterward, difficulty coping, and also some beneficial experiences. But the fact that people cannot exercise their free will and are manipulated to go on board this craft and they can't control their bodies when this is occurring This is the disturbing part because it's like the way we treat rats in a laboratory. You're absolutely correct on that. I I agree completely. Can you talk a little bit about the star map and the book that Betty talked about that was shown to her on board the ship? Yes. 
But before I do, I want to mention that this was also part of Betty's dream material. She dreamed these things before she relived them under hypnosis. And uh, under hypnosis, her statements were slightly different. The technology was different than it was in her dreams. The technology in the 1960s dreams was 1960s technology. The star map uh, came about because Betty asked the leader uh, where he was from. She said, I know you're not from around here. Where do you come from? Uh, And he produced a star map. In the dream, it was a star map that would roll down just like a, a window shade. But under hypnosis, it was a three-dimensional star map that she remembered, uh, like a hologram. And it had uh, 12 stars that were connected by either solid lines or dotted lines, and then there were three more stars uh, that were fairly prominent that were were not connected by lines. Now... Some of these were as large as nickels. Some were only pinpoints. And Betty uh, spoke to the leader about this. He asked her, she asked him where he was on the map. And he said, well, do you know where you are? And she said, no, I don't. And he said, well, if you don't know where you are, then I can't tell you where I am. You wouldn't understand that sort of thing. So, uh then he he just made the map go away and left her sort of hanging there with the memory of what the map looked like. It was about two feet by three feet. She was standing sort of looking up into it, and uh, the map appeared in the first book that was written about their experience, The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller, Uh, It was published in the fall of 1966. Now, Marjorie Fish, who was a very intelligent woman from Ohio, she was a school teacher, uh, amateur astronomer, she was a Mensa associate, she had majored in biology in school, uh, read the book, and she was skeptical, but she reasoned that if the star map uh, depicted an area in our solar, or not our solar system, in our galaxy, then she might be able to find it. So she went about building some three-dimensional models of our galaxy. And she started uh, going out uh, to 50 light years. In all, she built 26 models um, based upon Betty's two-dimensional drawing. She was seeking a pattern based upon Betty's drawing. And uh, she used monofilament line and beads. The great difficulty that she had is in acquiring uh, the data to use. Those uh, astronomical catalogs uh, that she needed couldn't be purchased. Uh, on the market anywhere. She had to go to Ohio State University and get the information. She had to copy all of it down by hand. I can't imagine the the math that she went through in placing all of those different 
stars in their proper location. And she, although she built 26 different models, she still wasn't able to find a match. And it wasn't until 1972 that she actually found the match. Um, she had 256 stars in their proper location, and uh, she only found the match after the last three stars were published in a catalog. They hadn't appeared in any catalog before that. We had just discovered them. They were not known in 1961 when Betty said she observed this map. They were not known in 1964 when Betty drew it from memory as a result of a post-hypnotic suggestion. And in that match, uh, the two base stars were Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Uh, we believe that those two stars are at least a billion years older than the sun, some say they're two to three billion years older than this, the sun. And uh, they are about 39 light years away from our sun. Uh, there were other, and, and they were connected by a, a number of solid lines, the two of them. So if they were actually, they're fairly close together, uh, it would give one civilization an incentive to travel to the next one. They could see each other. Uh, that's Stan Friedman's uh, take on all of this. And Stan was the first to publish on the star map, on Marjorie's work. Stan was actually called in by Coral Lorenzen, who was the director of APRO. And she asked him to find scientists who would be willing to vet Marjorie Fish's work. And Stan found some scientists to do that. And that, uh, that process was initiated. They found that Marjorie's work was accurate. And that's what they were looking for. That's exciting. He did a peer review of the star map work. Uh, yes, he initiated that. He found scientists. Alan Hynek, for example. David Saunders the head of the astronomy department at Ohio State University, scientists who would review Marjorie's work. And then Stan wrote about their findings. Stan's not a, an astronomer. He's a nuclear physicist. How do we get a copy of that map? How interesting. Uh, well, there is a copy of it uh, in the back of Captured. There's also a copy of it in The Interrupted Journey. Uh, the new, actually in the first edition of Captured, I had submitted the raw map that Betty drew and then the map with the Marjorie's identification of the stars. But there was a mistake and the identification was not published. But in the second printing, uh, the identification is there. So if you have a newer copy of Captured, you can find it. I do have a newer copy of Captured, but it's like a little bitty map. It's very hard to see. I think this should be made available to the public, completely blown up in a really gorgeous way. Well, I think that if you Google um, the uh, Betty Hill star map, yeah, get a reticuli incident or uh, Marjorie Fish's inter uh, uh, not interpretation but identification that you might find that, because I found that star map in numerous locations 
uh, on the Internet. I notice you say in the book, or you and Stanton write in the book, that most people don't make the distinction, the critical distinction, between the solar system and a galaxy. Make that distinction for us. Okay. A solar system is the star and the planets that revolve around that star. Um, So, uh, you know, the sun, the earth, and the other planets are our solar system. Our galaxy uh, contains uh, thousands and thousands of stars. And we're beginning to find out now that many of those stars, at least 10,000 of those stars, have solar systems. So they, we're beginning to find planets that are revolving around those stars. What do you think Betty and Barney would say now, if they were both alive, about the recent findings of the last 10 to 20 years? and the number of reports that are being authenticated and verified regarding both UFO sightings and abductions. What do you think they would say? I think that they would uh, be pleased to know that uh, we have so much evidence that Earth is being visited by an extraterrestrial civilization uh, the reports from highly respected military officers, um, the uh, astronauts, uh, reports of presidents' statements and sightings, uh, the physical trace evidence cases collected by Ted Phillips, for example, thousands of cases, uh, 4,000 uh, and, and I think more than that at last count. Uh, the, the work that Phyllis Buttinger is doing, analytical chemist Phyllis Buttinger, in, uh, in analyzing physical trace evidence from uh, landings and abduction sightings, or in abduction cases. Betty was, was highly skeptical, I can tell you. She was very skeptical about the idea that thousands of people have been abducted. Uh, she really believed that a lot of this, these were psychological abductions. And I agree with her that, I, well, you know, maybe a lot of them are, a percentage at least, perhaps 35% are the results of uh, hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations uh, with sleep paralysis. But there is also... Uh, a huge percentage where there's physical evidence, where there are uh, conscious memories, where the craft uh, are actually observed by uh, other witnesses. So you can't say that all abductions are the, are, uh, the result of uh, these psychological aberrations, but probably some are, just as in anything else. Uh, so I think that Betty was a little too skeptical, in my opinion. We disagreed on that, uh, but that was her take on all of it. How did you meet Stanton Friedman, and how did Betty meet Stanton Friedman, and what was Stanton's work with Betty and Barney about? Well, um, I can tell you that Stan first met Betty and Barney, uh, I believe it was in Ohio. They were down there to appear on a show to uh, promote the book, The Interrupted Journey. And uh, a, a, a 
radio stations that Stan was, I believe, making a, an appearance on informed him uh, about where Betty and Barney were staying. He called them, and they all had dinner together. And he said that he was very impressed by both of them, that they were both intelligent, stable, uh, well-spoken individuals. And uh, then, of course, he worked with Betty. Uh, Barney died in 1969. Uh, Stan met him shortly before his death. Betty worked with Stan uh, on Stan's uh, work about the star map. And, and that's the part of the case where he has really been mostly involved is in the star map work and also in uh, regarding statements made by debunkers and attacks upon Betty by debunkers. So that has been Stan's work uh, with Betty. He knew her. They made uh, television appearances together. I met him, I believe, for the first time at Betty's house during one of these appearances. Uh, I personally uh, knew Stan from because I attended UFO conferences, and I went to his lectures, and I found him extremely interesting. I read his books, and I was impressed by his meticulous research. And so when I was writing my book, Captured. I had written about two thirds of the book, and uh, this was in nineteen or in two thousand and five. Betty had passed in two thousand and four, and Betty had told me that if I ever needed any assistance with my book, I should speak to Stanton Friedman because she trusted him implicitly. She was very impressed by his work, and you know I started to think about that. And about his work on the star map, I'm, my background is in social science, and so I was writing the book from a social scientist perspective. But I thought that it would be strengthened by having the input from a physical scientist. And who better to ask to do that than Stanton Friedman? Uh, so it was actually at the MUFON Symposium in Denver, Colorado, in the year 2005, that I approached Stan with my proposal. Uh, he said that he thought it sounded interesting, but he needed to learn more about it. So in November, early November of 2005, he drove from his house in Fredericton, New Brunswick, to my house in Stratham, New Hampshire. That's where I was living at the time. I have since moved to Florida. And he stayed with my husband and myself for several days. Uh, he looked through all of Betty's files that I had. Uh, I have an extensive collection of her files. Uh, he read what I had written, my manuscript. We talked at length, and he made uh, loads of, of photocopies of uh, the information in my files. And in the end, he told me that he would join me in writing the book because I was being unbiased. So uh, that's how the book came into being, and my relationship with Stan Friedman began to develop into the working relationship that we have today. We had another book, Science Was Wrong, published last June. And I want to do a whole piece on that, too. 
When Betty's health was getting worse, she had had some type of breaking into her home. Somebody or some people kept breaking into her home. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because that was way afterward. I mean, Barney had passed already. Yes. Uh, a little bit of this started when Barney was alive. At least there were some a couple of bizarre incidents that happened, and you can read about that in Captured. But um, after Betty's, or after Barney's death, the harassment seemed to step up. And actually, I was a college student at the time, and I moved from my dormitory to Betty's house, to an apartment in her house to be with her, uh, to, to give her some support through this and to watch her house. Uh, one day, I was in the basement. I had a basement apartment. I was down there studying, and I heard what I thought was Betty uh, coming home for lunch. And so I went up the stairs, and there was no one there. I looked around, called for her, no Betty. So I went back downstairs. And all of a sudden, I heard a crash, and I went running up the stairs to see what that was. The closet door was open. The front door to her apartment was open, and the front door to her apartment building was open, and there was a man dressed in a brown suit, kind of sort of a tannish brown suit, running away from Betty's house. So I actually caught whoever that was, and I'm glad I didn't open the closet door. Uh, because I think he was holding that baseball bat. That was what I heard fall. Uh, there were other cases where Betty's house was entered. Uh, she had done her taxes. She had all of her tax information in a big uh, brown paper bag, all ready to take to her accountant, when it suddenly disappeared from her house. It appeared at a later date, I think it was a couple of months later, and the bag had been emptied out, scattering papers all through her apartment. Uh, at another time, uh, her dining room chairs were taken into her living room and just arranged in a circle. Another time, her clothing, her coats were taken out of her closet and, and they were lying in a heap on her living room floor, and one of Barney's scarves was laying over the top of the heap. So these were all uh, things that, that happened that were very distressing, uh, that Betty couldn't stop. And the only way that she stopped them was to have the security system put into her house, and it was wired into the police department. Her house was broken into one time after that. The alarm went off. Uh, the police came. They didn't catch the person, but that seems to have ended uh, the breaking and entering into her home. What do you think that was? It was obviously human harassment. Oh, I think it was um, an intelligence agency. That's my impression. Her phone was tapped as well. And I've read this in her records, and I've read statements by other individuals. She had the tap taken off at one time. At the end of her life, was she happy? Was there a sense of great loss? Was there a sense of having not lived the life she wanted to live? Do you remember? Oh, yes. I, I am the trustee of her estate, and I actually 
took physical care of Betty when she was in hospice care in her home uh, at the end of her life. She was dying from lung cancer. And Betty was a very optimistic person at the end of her life. She, she stated that she thought she had lo- lived a wonderful life. And when asked uh, if she would have preferred not to have had this abduction experience, she said that the abduction experience opened up new avenues to her. She met people that she never would have met before. And she really, really enjoyed meeting all of these different scientists and all of the individuals she met. Uh, She had a gregarious personality. She loved people. She had a great sense of humor, kind of a wry sense of humor, and uh, had a constant flow of visitors through her house. And uh, so she was very, very happy and felt gratified at the end of her life. She felt she had lived a wonderful life. I'm glad to hear that. What about Barney? What's your take on the end of his life? and where he was left in his psyche with all this. Barney's life ended in 1969. The Interrupted Journey was published in the fall of 1966, so he really didn't have a great deal of time to enjoy life after the, the UFO experience, the hypnosis, and... Uh, he was actually still actively promoting the book. He was actively working on the civil rights movement. He uh, had been appointed by the governor of New Hampshire to serve on the State Advisory Commission uh, for the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. So, you know, he was, he was a driven man. He was very active in all of these different things, and, and his life was suddenly snuffed out due to a cerebral hemorrhage during uh, a blizzard in February of 1969. He was 46 years old. And the sense I got from him was that there hadn't been closure at that time the way there was with Betty. There were still so many questions and there was still so much to do that he didn't have the opportunity to accomplish. He passed very young. Yes, he did. And how was Betty after her husband had passed so young like that? Uh, it was it was very very difficult for Betty uh, to to go through this. I actually have included a letter that she wrote about this in in the book Captured, uh, where she's introspective and 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 talking about uh, Barney's loss and and how. They had simply been down enjoying a game of pool in their basement. There was so much snow that they both had the day off from work. Even the the U.S. post office had to close. And how uh, he felt that he had uh, was experiencing a, the sensation of having a bee sting in his head. And this occurred, and all of a sudden he said he didn't feel well. And he tried to make his way up the stairs and collapsed on the stairs and sort of dragged himself toward the couch, and Betty found him there. And 
just the, the entire experience of, of not anticipating that this would happen and uh, that he was in a deep coma that he wouldn't come out of and the worry she experienced. And then life suddenly without her spouse at such a young age. Um, but she was a very strong person, and she also had a lot of support. And, and she went on uh, through all of this. What a survivor and a compelling being to have, once this whole series of abductions became public, to have just embraced it and stepped out and helped educate the public about it. Yeah, she was fearless. How has your work changed? You've been in this a long time now. How has your work changed since you had access to one of the most public cases of a UFO abduction? Well, it hasn't changed a great deal, I, I don't think, I'm, uh, except for that I uh, am writing more and more. I'm, I'm being asked to write magazine articles. Stan and I are talking about the possibility of writing another book. So this has really become pretty much a full-time job for me. I, I travel and I lecture. I have a number of presentations that I give at, at conferences around the United States. I'm actually going to appear in England for the first time. Fantastic. One of my favorite places. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's opened up new avenues for me. And I've also become interested in other aspects of the alien abduction uh, phenomenon. And one of those is uh, paranormal events that seem to occur in the homes of abductees, such as light orbs that some people report pop into aliens and uh, poltergeist-type activity. Uh, so so I'm, I'm beginning to explore that a little bit. I want to know how widespread that is and if it's happening to people just after their first abduction experience or if it has happened to these individuals throughout their lives. So uh, that's interesting to me. I really appreciate you taking your time today to share with us about your work, about Betty and Barney Hill and to reflect the findings. And thank you and Stanton for bringing us captured the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. And thank you for also presenting to us in a poised manner in which we could receive the information. It was my pleasure. And I would like to give my website. Yes, absolutely. I'm actually going to give that, but go right ahead. Okay. Uh, you can visit my website at www.kathleen-marden.com. And uh, I have several articles. Uh, there's a list of my upcoming appearances. And you can also purchase uh, autographed copies of my books directly from me using PayPal at that site. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Kathleen Marden. She is the co-author of the book, The True Story of the World's First Documented Alien Abduction, Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, along with Stanton Friedman, 
She is a UFO and abduction researcher, author and lecturer, and senior fellow of the Institute of Frontier Science and MUFON director of field investigator training emeritus. She is also the co-author of the book, Science Was Wrong, along with Stanton Friedman. Kathleen, I hope you will join us to talk about the book, Science Was Wrong, along with Stanton Friedman. And thank you so much for your time today. And thank Betty and Barney Hill for being willing to share their experiences, both in the state of hypnosis and also to allow you and bless you to transcribe those tapes and to share their experiences with us. Thank you so much. You're welcome.